whether we're talking about business, wellness, travel, or relationships. I've always thought age is just a number. Welcome to Ageless with me, Cynthia Raleigh, and my daughter, Kit Keenan. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Ageless. It is just Kit today, and I am lucky enough to have the founder, Amanda Taylor of Unplug Collective, and her COO, Zara Harding, on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having us. So I guess we can just jump right in. I would love to hear a little bit of the founding story of Unplug and where everything started. So obviously I'm Amanda, as you said. <laughs> Thanks for having us again. Basically, Zara and I have been friends for a really, really long time. We grew up together, always manifesting, always talking about what we wanted to see in the world. And Zara was a big part of the reason why I went away to New York to pursue journalism and to be in that space. So when I had an idea to start a platform, she was one of the first people I spoke to about it. And essentially, I wanted to start a page that was literally just prioritizing Black women, Black cis women, trans women, non-binary people who feel comfortable in a space that centers women, people who have experienced misogyny, to just write about their experiences in the first person. No one is telling you that you can't say what you're saying, no one's silencing you. And it's a safe space where you're having an editor go through your story with you while it's being written so that at every step of the way, you are naming something, you're feeling something, and then you're sharing it. And you're kind of starting in that healing process. So I think I wanted to create a digital healing circle. And it started kind of as a journalism platform. It's now tackling fashion, wellness, education, all of these things. But it's it's an ecosystem that I'm so happy we were able to create. I found it and I was like, oh my God, I need to get the, the founder of this platform on right away because it's so awesome what you guys are doing. I want to hear about the Dear Fashion Industry hashtag and how that all came to be. Well, it was it was really started with a campaign that we were doing with Parade to showcase their products, their size-inclusive underwear. As we were figuring out how we wanted to advertise it, how we wanted to sort of approach the, the campaign, we thought a lot about how the issues that we want to be talking about aren't exclusive to underwear, aren't exclusive to Parade as a brand, but it's really an issue with the entire industry. And so, you know, we sat and brainstormed for hours and days like, this doesn't feel right. What slogan are we going to be able to use that really captures this? And really prompts people to start telling their stories. That was really the idea of it, is that it's an incomplete sentence as it stands on its own. And so hearing the hashtag and seeing it introduced, it prompts a follow-up. The idea was to have people really start to dig into what they want to say to the fashion industry, just from their point of view and perspective, just to sort of let loose with whatever whatever grievances they had, whatever they wanted to, to say. And then now it sort of expanded past just this campaign with Parade and we've continued to introduce a hashtag to continue to force people to think about 
how the fashion industry contributes to all of these issues because people have like such a wide range of experiences with, with how the industry has affected them. So the purpose of the hashtag really is to draw out those responses. Yeah, and I think we have been sourcing stories since January 2019 when I started on on my personal Instagram page, having no idea that people were going to reach out and share. I announced Unplug, and then from then until now, we have not stopped getting stories. So what we found, or what I found at the time, was that every single story had something to do with body discrimination in some form, whether that was the way that someone was being perceived, the way they were being harmed, the way they were perceiving themselves. And there was no real category for stories like that, because I don't know how many publications are asking people to write in the first person in the first place. And so everyone wears clothes. Everyone has a body. The fashion industry is not catering to that. Not, it, it, the fashion industry oftentimes is not thinking about that. And so that's why fashion became such a clear connection when all of these stories were about people's bodies. It's like a lot of the times it's not you, it's the clothes. Like you're, you want to change yourself or you want to change yourself. You want to change your body because there are no resources for you. And I think clothes are obviously a necessity. So it's really unfortunate that so many people cannot access them. I think this applies to the broader movement to towards body positivity. I guess I'm wondering what your guys' thoughts on that, because I was just reading Lizzo's big piece in Vogue, and she was talking about how this term body positivity has been very commercialized. And I think that you see that so much, even in like the plus size clothing fashion industry world. And I would love to know your guys' thoughts just on like terminology stuff and also how you guys think about your own relationships to body positivity and the whole movement overall. But I think one of the guiding principles that we start to live by is like, we are never going to go onto our page and just tell people to love themselves. Like <laughs> that really goes nowhere. That doesn't do anything for anyone. And so, you know, it's great that there is a lot more sort of widespread messaging now of, People should feel good about their bodies. All bodies are good bodies, etc., etc., etc. It's great, but that doesn't really give anybody the tools and the information necessary to understand why they didn't love themselves in the first place, why they didn't love their bodies in the first place. Because literally everything that we see and are given teaches us not to. And so, the way that we see ourselves positioned within the frame of body positivity is very like information heavy so we're never as i said we're never going to go onto the page and say you're beautiful today love yourself smile rather we're going to sort of dig into the background stuff and say here's how doctors typically discriminate against people based on their weight here are some experiences of retail workers in the stores and how how their stores have discriminated against people with larger bodies and giving people that information allows them to really understand so at least begin to start to process that, wait, this isn't about me. This isn't actually about me being demonized and, and me doing something wrong. It's that the world literally isn't built for me and isn't catering to me. And that's a problem, not me. We do obviously fall into the body positive movement. There's 
talk about body neutrality as well, just sort of accepting your body for what it is, as opposed to having to love it all the time, which is also, but in general, I think we can't just, the conversation of body positivity is incomplete without all of the background information necessary to understand why body positivity is even necessary as like a movement in the it's one of the systems of oppression that is so extremely normalized, especially given diet culture and fitness culture that is not weight neutral right now. And that is so focused on weight loss. We have a post that is called How the BMI is Medical Discrimination. And it goes into the fact that the person who created the BMI wasn't even a doctor or a physician. They were an astronomer and they only sampled white European populations ages ago ages ago and this person was actually obsessed with finding quote unquote the perfect man and he sampled all of these populations to find this information it was something he did in his spare time that was never meant to be the tool that doctors used to diagnose people and essentially really regardless of what people's opinions are because we know this is going to take so long to really get into people's heads how much of it is medical discrimination and how it should be moving to a world that is weight neutral however regardless of what you think right now or what you feel every single body is deserving of care every single person is deserving of equal access to a diagnosis when they walk into a doctor's office or to just about everything clothes all of these different things and right now that is not the case right now people are being blamed right now people are not being asked you know what is your personal life what is going on why is this affecting you especially when it comes down to mental health and physical health you know how is what you're experiencing a symptom of something more that's going on in your life that has nothing to do with your weight and how are we not giving people in bigger bodies that luxury it's the 1830s, by the way, so almost 200 years ago, this thing was made. It also reminds me of, like, the ideal plate that you would see. Like, I don't know if they have this in other countries, but in America, they have, like, the ideal plate. And I remember being in elementary school in New York and, like, seeing, like, half the plate should be greens and half of it should be, like, milk or whatever. And it's just, like, all bought out by whatever agricultural like institution wanted to sell their product and so it's just like a lot of these standards are rooted in such oppressive systems and if you don't know the history behind it it's just like that is the rule it brings me to the next question which is about there is sort of this separation between feeling and facts and research and I guess in the fashion industry I see this trend towards like there's a great PR stunt and they send bigger bodied models down the runway or maybe they do a campaign with not straight size models and that's great but there's still issues within the company who's working for the company etc. And to me, there's a lot of times like this big difference between actually creating change within the industry and then like just an intention of creating change. 
I think this is obviously really bold of me to say, and I might get picked back for it, but I'm just gonna say it. When you are not being size inclusive in your brand, you're being racist. Straight up, period. Because the BMI, as we were talking about, you guys can go back to that post, look down on Instagram, at the Unco Collective. Four out of five black women are considered quote unquote overweight by the BMI. Four out of five. And racism will tell you that that's because of lack of access to food or that black women don't work out or all of that stuff. And our research will tell you that black women, some black women are built differently. Some black women do not have the same body makeup as the white males that this guy was sampling in the 1830s. And even for whatever the reason, black women, white women, any, any, any person deserves, apart from the fact that it is simply racist. And that these, a lot of these, especially high fashion and luxury brands, are used to only catering to white women with certain body types. It is also classist because people may not have access to certain conversations and certain spaces. Health in and of itself, even though it has absolutely no relation to weight, all of these conversations are very privileged conversations to be having because some people just need to figure out what they're going to eat today. And so to even have an industry that is constantly promoting one way of looking, one standard, any standard in and of itself is also rooted in white supremacy. So the entire thing, tear it down. <laughs> tear it down, rip it apart, and build a fashion industry that caters to everyone. I'm not saying that your, your practice needs to cater to everyone. I'm not saying that every single brand needs to cater to every single person. I'm saying look at who is not represented and reach out. Ask questions. What are you not doing correctly? Who are you not reaching and why? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is to just listen to the people who want to serve better. And not just, let's put out a survey, thanks for your responses, we'll, we'll incorporate this into our business model. No, hire people. Get people on your board that care about these issues the models that you choose, the designers that you work with. Like, it, it has to also be structural. And that isn't just with regard to, you know, straight size versus plus size, but also with, with regard to race, with regard to gender. Like, every system of oppression can only even begin to be torn down by including everybody in the decision-making process and distributing that power evenly so that everyone has a chance to, to, to get their foot in the door. And with this... We're not going to start seeing change until people who are higher up start to say, okay, this is urgent and we need to actually do something because people don't like to give up the power that they worked so hard to obtain. <laughs> so when you're at the top and you know, you're surrounded by people who look exactly like you at the top, the choice, for example, to say, I'm going to step down from my position and I want to be replaced by somebody who may better solve this issue, like that's a really difficult decision for people to make. But overall, structurally, that is the type of sort of radical decision making that needs to happen. You know, maybe not necessarily everybody stepping down and doing that, but like people need to be included um, in the higher conversations and in the in the decision making. And like, it's really just a matter of listening. Just ask, and then when you get answers, listen and. Do something with it, you know? I think also another, you know, 
parallel issue is obviously sustainability. And I'm wondering what you guys think about how this structural change in terms of inclusivity also has to do with sustainability. I think they are very like highly, highly interconnected because you see the issues with fast fashion, that fast fashion companies are some of the only companies that, that cater to larger bodies and have plus size options that are actually cute. It is honestly a much larger issue and conversation and something that also needs to be tackled on the manufacturing side. Because like we've thought about, you know, making producing t-shirts and, and stuff like that. And then we get down to the nitty-gritty and the Every single manufacturer only goes up to FTRX. And so there's so many different avenues that need to be tackled. We spoke to somebody the other day who went to fashion school and they were like, yeah, we're just not taught to make larger clothes. We're not taught to, to pattern and sew in larger sizes because the whole thing sort of is different once you get past a certain size. And they're not like literally not allowed to use larger bodies for the sketches. And so you have that. And, and to the point where designers aren't, there's no demand for, for manufacturers to go past a certain size because the designers themselves don't even know how to design for larger bodies. So when you start to get down to the, to the economics of it, it's like in school, you're producing all of these designers who know nothing about designing for larger bodies. Then once they go into the fashion world and they start actually producing the clothing, if they don't know how to make clothes for larger bodies, then why are they, why are they you know, putting any pressure on manufacturers to make larger clothes or not? And so from the manufacturer side, there's no financial incentive to even learn how to produce those clothing because, because there's no demand for it. And so, you know, I mean, we talk all the time about how all of this is like rooted in capitalism. It absolutely is. And when you start thinking about the supply and demand of everything, it's like, it doesn't make sense quote-unquote, why we've come to this point where it's like manufacturers don't go past a certain size and don't know how to do that in a sustainable way. And then, you know, you're sort of left in this industry where the only companies that are producing this program is like doing so completely I think the reason their fashion industry has been so cool is because we've gotten to speak to people who are making the clothes and people who are buying the clothes and it's really made us go into depth about the process of the fashion world rather than just demonizing the entire thing and being like we hate the fashion industry we hate everyone and we've spoken to designers who have actually been really excited like high fashion luxury designers who've been really excited to cater to larger sizes but once they were ready to do that the department stores would not take on their bag. So we know that there's problems at literally every tier. Zara, what you were saying about the sketches, like it brings back so many memories from childhood because my mom is a fashion designer and I just remember seeing sketches growing up my entire life that are like, not only are they trained to sketch street sized bodies, but the bodies are like, literally Barbie dolls, but not like stretched out Barbie dolls. So they're like seven feet tall Barbie dolls. I remember seeing stuff where I'm just like, when they recreated the Barbie doll in real life and they were like, there's no way this could actually like work. This person couldn't function. It would be like next level, the sketches that they do and that they're taught in school. And I just think that like, 
I do like, I relate to Amanda, what you were saying also, like, sometimes I'm just like, fuck fashion. Like I can't, like, it's just, there's so much stuff that needs to be figured out that it's just like, sometimes so overwhelming that I'm just like, I don't, I just want to like wear my grandma sweaters from like the vintage store and like, that's it. And like not focus on anything else. But then like, you know, I see my mom who's always designed for straight sizes being like, Oh, now I'm going to make plus size clothing and like do a whole range and like have it on rent the runway so people can wear it to work and like see these women wearing these beautiful dresses all over New York. And I'm just like, that is so inspiring. You know, I know it's not like changing the world, but it is like, okay, there's small changes happening and maybe that's helpful. And it inspires me to think that there can be change in the industry, but it is it's like, it's definitely overwhelming. And I think about that, that all the time where I'm just like, Oh my God, I don't even want to like take part. But then, you know, I see a company like parade and I'm like, this is awesome. Like what you guys are doing. I guess I would just like to hear from you guys. If there are brands like parade or others that have really been inspiring to you in that way, where you're like, okay, actually there could be people doing the right thing and making these positive changes? Oh my gosh, so many. I think I am so excited by fashion. I'm so excited by the future of fashion. I mean, Unplug has had the opportunity to go in so many different directions and I always come back to fashion because as I said earlier, like everyone wears clothes, everyone deserves clothes. And everyone, I think one of the models in their fashion industry said, like, I just want fashion to love me as much as I love it. Like, so there's so many people who are just like waiting their entire lives to be catered to by this industry. And, you know, I could use so many different brands that I think are doing a great job. The one thing that they have in common is that they're taking a community approach to fashion, a collective approach to fashion. Because, you know, fashion, clothes, self-expression, it's something that we should all be sharing with each other and sharing in together. It shouldn't be something individual. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So much of fashion is this collective thing. Even fashion week, people are sitting down together, excited to see, you know, what's going to come down the runway. So I think if we're trying to apply that to everyone else, and I know Vogue just did an issue talking about, not an issue, Vogue just did a video on YouTube kind of talking about what the future of fashion looks like. I think the future of fashion has to be community. I think it also needs to be size inclusive and to me size inclusivity doesn't just mean you know catering to larger sizes it also means being less rigid about sizing in general because I think a big thing that makes people feel like they're not enough is you know the numbers and the rigidity of that like oh did I go up a size I can't I can't move up a size I can't my body can't change And something that we talk about a lot is that bodies are always in flux. I mean, we are obviously in college. What our bodies are going to look like 10 years from now, if we have kids, if we don't have kids, whatever the situation, like we go through things and our bodies shift and that needs to be normalized. And I think sizing, because of the world that we live live in, makes it a little bit difficult to accept that fact. And something that, you know, a brand called Universal Standard does 
which is really, really cool. I'm not sure if they're still doing it, but I know at that time, if you change sizes within a year, you can exchange your jeans for another pair of a different size without actually paying any money. I feel like that's just a really small way to make a really big shift for people to realize like it's okay. You're not being punished. You don't have to pay more. You don't have to worry about finances because your size changed. You just deserve that right to have a good relationship with it shows and with yourself. Yeah, I've definitely, I mean, I've definitely seen like this community approach to fashion is, is really interesting to me because I think it has never been that. It has always been the designer or, or these higher ups, like the icons of the fashion industry kind of being like, you know, the people that sit at front rows at shows. And those are the people who are dictating to the entire world, like, this is what is cool. This is what is fashionable, whatever. And now I do see more of a shift towards this relationship between the consumer and the designer, which is really interesting. And I guess it also goes back to sustainability. Like when I see brands starting to do this like pre-order type format for their creating clothes, it's like, okay, how many people are actually going to buy this item so that I don't produce like a thousand and only sell a hundred? Let's see, you know what the consumer actually wants. If they like this item, then yeah, I will produce more, but I'm going to try and limit my overproduction. And so I think that's kind of just like an example of how this community approach also influences the sustainability aspect. But I guess maybe we could shift gears a little bit and talk about, I know you guys are both in college, which is crazy and awesome. And I love meeting people who are doing such amazing things at such a young age, because sometimes I'm like, people ask me all the time, like, how do you have a podcast and whatever and do all of this while you're in college, but you guys are doing the most. I want to hear about your experience in college and kind of how you think that colleges and universities could help support your goals better. I don't know. I'm kind of like, fuck college. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm, you know, super grateful. I'm like, don't take away my college money. But I think honestly, no, it's double-edged sword because of course the college I go to has been so, so instrumental in this. As I said, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm majoring in women, gender studies and Africana studies. I say all the time that the class that I was in, there's a class I was in my freshman fall called Practicing Intersectionality. But actually, all of it's the best class I've ever taken. Every single reading was in the first person and they were all memoirs of people's experiences. And pretty much what it allowed for is that people who were being silenced by different administrations throughout history where their history was literally being erased memoirs were the only thing that kept their history going and so you can always look back at someone's personal story where no one has tainted it or changed it for the consumer or the audience even if it was written a hundred years ago that's still written in the first person and so through college i was able to learn about how powerful that could be and of course that directly impacted unplug and its trajectory I think the reason but college was my immediate kind of go-to 
is because in terms of everything that Unplugged has created, that has had to be separate completely from college. I've had to do both at the same time and I've had to kind of put in blood, sweat and tears outside of college to, to get this done. And I think that in terms of success, a lot of the times I was told, a lot of people are told that like if you don't go to college or if you're not in a college space and you're not able to create something, and I've created something with my phone, like on Instagram, that had nothing to do. But the resources themselves were not directly correlated to college. So I think to each his own, and I just never want to necessarily tie too closely like college and success. I think if for anyone listening, listen to your instincts. Do not do anything that you don't want to. From an institutional standpoint, it's honestly a little bit difficult to say just because the issues that we tackle definitely sort of fall under a much wider umbrella of schools just supporting and sort of populating white supremacy in general um, in a lot of different ways. And so I would say the more that a university can offer resources and offer classes and just make information accessible, as, as accessible as possible to people and as immediate, because, you know, colleges at the time do have a lot of control over what classes you have to take. Like, you know, Columbia requires us to take classes about Western literature and Western art and music and all of these things. And it's like, you do have power over what you're exposing your students to. And so the more that, that colleges can make certain that students are being exposed to different kinds of histories, different kinds of history making in general, and more and more information about how, how, how people work. I think the better, and, and even if it's not required, just making those classes accessible. Because a lot of this stuff that I've, I mean, there's plenty of things that I've learned just completely independently of college that I've literally just had to like Google and learn on my own and research. But there, there's a lot of really valuable stuff that I've learned through some of my classes, you know, whether it's side classes or accident intersectionality, I was in that class with my mom as well, and women, other women and gender studies classes, just like the, the, the information is there. And so I think colleges can do more to just make that information more accessible and sort of on the forefront of students' learning experiences. I love that idea. I never thought about the required classes, really. But now that I think about it, that's such like a great opportunity to insert some great learning opportunities that I feel like I was just made to take like another math class that was like similar to my high school math class or whatever. So that's just like a pretty small change that could make like a huge difference. So I love that idea. I guess this is kind of a general question, but I want to know what you guys have learned recently from the stories that you've been getting at Unplugged. Maybe there's something that you didn't think about before or that's been coming up more recently that is just like front of mind i would say we've been getting a lot more stories and also just doing a lot more research on the medical aspect of things and so it's a whole world of discrimination that we literally just for the most part are completely blind to because doctors have this sort of their own degree of authority in our lives and so when you have an entire system that is fat-phobic and based on fat-phobic research, where certain people aren't being studied, people are being left out of the conversation, 
assumptions are being made, and then who base an entire sort of field and industry on that information, it's really, it becomes really easy for that stuff to, to become true, so to speak, for a lot of people. And something that I at least have been learning a lot through the content, through the stories that we've been getting, through people's responses and comments on the page, is that a lot of things that we take for granted as truth really are fundamentally rooted in things that are changeable, things that aren't capital to truth. It's structural. That's something that's been super interesting for us to learn about and to sort of dive more into, to start to peel away layers and, and, and dig and do the research to be able to show people, not just for us to know, but to actually then generate it as content and show people like a lot of the things that you, you have been taught your entire life from your doctors directly is, is actually BS. <laughs> and there's so many different ways to look at it and so much more research that needs to be done on this topic and there, some research is being done and so exposing at least my mind to that and being able to um, then shift that background as more content. But like people have just the most incredible experiences and you know, if you do, even just reading through the comments on the page, you learn so much about how the medical industry in particular really perpetuates this stuff badly and they need to change. Yeah, I think for me, we've been getting a lot more stories about people's mental health. So a lot about anxiety, a lot about eating disorders, um, about depression and I think what we are always trying to make clear and what the stories do a great job of making clear is that mental health is not as prioritized as physical health not nearly as prioritized even though the two of them intersect so much so much in ways that we don't even know or talk about so I think even when it comes down to eating disorders especially when people say you know you need to be healthy healthy to a lot of people, to the fitness industry, to the fashion industry, to all of these industries means looking a certain way and having a certain image that doesn't consider all of the mental and physical health atrocities that can happen in the pursuit of health when you're not being given quote-unquote health. You're not being told to eat in a way that nourishes your body. You're just being told to eat in a way that makes you present in a certain way. No one's thinking about, you know, the obsessive behaviors that can come about when you have to think about every calorie that you're putting into your body. No one's thinking about the body dysmorphia or the ways in which it makes people really depressed or really anxious when they feel like they're not presenting the way that people are accepting of in the world. I mean, that is so crippling to so many people and it's not. It needs to be prioritized. I mean, it, it's literally a crisis and it's not being spoken about enough. How do you think the online health and wellness community can support that goal better? I think people need to do their damn research. <laughs> it's being produced more and more every day, but it's it's there. Like you can really learn about this stuff um, pretty readily. And I think people, because it's so ingrained, people just continue to reproduce it. Because, you know, you have this mentality of looking a certain way means healthy. I'm going to eat virtually nothing or like fill, fill up with berries all day and, and salad, which is fine. But, you know, different foods provide different nutrients and different bodies need different things. And a one size fits all approach to health and to, you know, eating and exercise is never going to work. 
never going to work. People's bodies operate very differently across the board. And so I think people need to sort of give up all of this that we've been taught, all of the stuff that we've been taught about, you know, how bodies work and just really sort of start, try to start from scratch and build up from there and learn, okay, this is how bodies work and then also incorporating the mental health aspect, as Amanda was saying, like personal trainers, for example, might have this mentality that, oh, I'm helping my clients because I'm helping them to get stronger and fitter and healthier and all of these things. But the entire time they're saying, we're going to get you to that Miami Beach summer body. Like, we're going to take two inches off of that waist. We're going to do da 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 And it's like, when you really start to incorporate the mental health aspect as being equally important as the physical health, you start to realize, like, wait, I'm actually really damaging people consistently. That reminded me of a story that someone told. Two stories. Someone was going to the gym, and they started the gym at a certain weight in a, in a bigger body and lost like a ton of weight over the period of time that they were in the gym and got most improved award at the gym from their personal trainer. Now, when the person was asked, what, what were you doing to improve? They said, well, I stopped eating more than one meal a day and I started going to the gym twice a day. And everyone in the gym, especially in a society that rewards productivity and rewards punishment as well. That's a whole other thing that we can get into. But people do not see it. People are almost blind to what, what it could mean for someone's mental health to go to the gym twice a day and their physical health, their blood sugar, their everything. <laughs> you know, what, what would that do to a person's body to be going at that rate twice a day and eating once a day? That is, you know, no one should have to go through that. And then at the end of that, be rewarded. Not only by the gym for most improved, but probably everyone in her life. Probably everyone came up to her and said, you look amazing, which I always say is code for you, you've lost weight. You look so healthy. What are, what are you doing? And so I think, as I was saying, we have to look at what our definition of health is, what it means when we're saying that, what are we saying? And the second story that came up, someone wrote, so it was one of the first stories for Unplug. It was why I'm, I was proud of my bronchitis was the name. And it was when someone was like pretty much terminally ill. Actually, it wasn't terminal, but they were really, really ill. And they'd been ill for weeks and they lost a whole ton of weight because of it. And that was when people told them they were, they were the most healthy. A lot of cancer survivors talk about that as well, that they were almost happy initially because... People were commenting on their weight loss. This is, it's disgusting. Right? <laughs> and it can only be fixed by taking a much more weight neutral approach to, as you were saying, the fitness and wellness space. Yeah. And I think that, I think that people need to take responsibility for the impact that they're having. Right. So if you are somebody who likes to work out, for example, and you think to yourself, I'm going to start a fitness page on Instagram and I'm going to, you know, give people these workouts and, you know, provide all of these resources and I'm going to gain all of these followers and post all of this stuff. You have to understand the impact that you have as a person who may not be certified to be teaching this stuff. <laughs> and that's the danger of social media is that anyone can say anything. Um, and so what you have is you have an entire arsenal of influencers on Instagram who are, you know, fitness people and advertising their 
slapped on with tea and their shit, this and shit, that and smooth it is. 80 to 90% of those people don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. They just know the experience that they've had in their body, which is valid. Maybe that individual was able to exercise however many times a week and eat the way that they eat and, and feel better or what have you. But again, bodies operate differently. So for an individual to go online and say, here's what you need to do to look like me and have be gaining thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of followers. It's practicing off the pain and it's awful because it also doesn't consider eating disorders. And the fact that some people, some people genuinely, they may be able to go on diets in their lifetime and not have a deathly effect on them. However, their relationship to diets, it's like, you know, I've spoken to a therapist about it and it was almost, she made a parallel to functioning alcoholics and alcoholics. We have some people who may be able to go home every night and drink three cups of, of, of rum and not actually have that much of a drastic effect on their life. Their, their spouse may not even know about it. Their quality of life doesn't really decline. And then you may have an alcoholic who cannot do that without spiraling. Who, even if they go near to a drink, their quality of life declines a big, you see a big shift in, in the way that they're functioning. And so it's kind of similar with disordered eating, which is a lot of dieting and a lot of what the fitness world promotes, and then eating disorders. So some people genuinely, they may be able to go on diets, they may be able to restrict, and it doesn't become a mental illness that like, becomes an obsession with the counting and the body dysmorphia and all of it. Some people do not have access to, to that without into a place that is quite literally the most deadly mental illness that exists. So when you are promoting something that may have worked, quote unquote, worked for you, you do need to take responsibility for the potential damage of people who do have eating disorders. And last thing, as onlookers as well, some of those people promoting what they're doing also have eating disorders and also are very fueled and attached to this image of themselves as this you know, fitness person and as this, you know, sort of health guru and in reality, like so many, so much of the, the fitness industry and the quote-unquote health and diet, diet industry is fueled by people who engage in heavily disordered eating. And so mm-hmm. this whole industry is sort of founded on this principle. We have to kind of take a step back and ask ourselves, like, what are we really doing here? Are we, is this really about health? What's this about? Mm-hmm. Um, and being you know, from the from their side, responsible about the impact that they're having and then from the consumer side, really looking at the pages that we follow, the people that we look up to and say, does this person actually have the credentials to be telling me what they're telling me about how I need to feel myself? I think sometimes there are people with the credentials and like we talked about, those credentials are built on systems of oppression and that education comes from white supremacist thinking. So I think it helps, but I don't think it like completely creates this like true health message necessarily. And I also think it goes back to like this question of what is rewarded online. And we know what is rewarded online, like in terms of, especially I know like within the health and wellness realm, like weight loss is awarded. And I saw one of your guys' posts recently that was talking about like just 
certain activist pages being completely like shadow banned on Instagram. Maybe it's a little bit like conspiratorial or whatever, but it's like, what is really getting to the top of your for you page or your explore page or whatever. It's like you, there's not as much control over that as we think there is. Oh yeah, definitely. I don't know if you, you guys have seen this. There's a documentary that came out recently on Netflix called the social dilemma that talks all about this, like how the algorithm works and how we're basically just puppets to the machine. <laughs> so it's really interesting that you bring that up because absolutely as individuals, there is only so much control that we have. And so, you know, in partnership with the conversation surrounding individuals, we absolutely have to talk about industries and, you know, the people at the top. And even what you're saying about sometimes the people who do have the credentials, you know, are learning from from these horrible systems. And it's so, like, I'm I'm studying now for a personal trainer certification. And literally, page two of my textbook, this is the timing of it was so funny this is like the following the week after we posted the, the did the bmi post that we did so we've like done all of this research have all of these comments like i was having so much conversation about how the bmi is bullshit basically and then page two of my textbook when i started lists out the bmi qualifications and like what do you need to do when you have a client that's that's obese or overweight and then seeing these words being used in my textbook after we've gone on the page and we've said these categories are arbitrary, some of these words are slurs, and some of these like these words are so harmful. And then this is like one of the top um, like personal trainer certification schools in America, and so many people training to to have this impact on people's lives are literally paid to like right in front of your eyes as you start, as you get into it, like you're being fed this stuff. So really, really important point to bring up, and it's absolutely true, like we need to also think about, not only do we need to hold people accountable on social media, we need to rewrite the textbooks. Really, you know, start with research, really. Yeah, I think something that Zara and I talk about a lot too is that the environments that people need to go to that could potentially benefit health, Potentially, by the way, because you don't need you don't need a gym to be healthy at all. Like we talk a lot about intuitive movement, but if it's someone's choice that they want to go to a gym or they want to go to physical therapy, they need to have a social environment, regardless of their size, that is not focused on their size. If you're going to for quote unquote health benefits, for example, I want to go to the gym today because I want to release some stress and anxiety. But while I'm at the gym, I'm being stressed out about what my body should look like. Then it's not the social environment is not catering to health at all. And especially for people in bigger bodies who feel harassed whenever they go to a space that whether it's the doctor, the gym, the physical therapist, a lot of people from the stories that we're seeing have just not gone to the doctor. There was someone who said, I stopped going to the doctor. I stopped seeing the doctor when the doctor stopped seeing me, which is so upsetting and such a health crisis that we're also not talking about so yeah industries need to change people at the top need to fix it oh my gosh that is it's just so sometimes it's just like so overwhelming I could talk about this with you guys forever you honestly are such just like a wealth of knowledge and it's crazy that you're so young and already making such huge changes 
Yeah, but I guess we can kind of close off here. And one question we ask all of our guests on Ageless is, what do you want to be when you grow up? So I would love to hear your thoughts on that. This is probably maybe the corniest answer that I could ever give. But I want to be myself. Like I want to really come into who I am more and more as I get older. And I have felt myself already sort of doing that. And I'm very similar to my mother. I love her to death. <laughs> We're the same. And she's she's incredible. She does amazing things. So, you know, just getting older and sort of realizing my myself more. And just having, I want to be somebody who has an impact on the world, but also has a has a strong role with the people around me and just knows myself so well through and through that everything that flows from me just is genuine and sort of comes from my heart. No, I literally would have the word for word answer, <laughs> the same exact one. Like I literally was going to say myself, but Zara and I usually have telepathy going on. So... I'm not even surprised, honestly, but like I'm, when I say I would have the exact same answer, I really mean it. Honestly, I think there are certain spaces that I would love to occupy. Like I'd love to be in the fashion space. I'd love to help guide that conversation. I'd love to pursue music as well. Like there's just so many things I'd love to do. But as Zara said, from a genuine place and from a place that has nothing to do with achievements and nothing to do with accolades and so much more to do with what is my intuition telling me I need to do right now and what impact can I really make on the world and the people around me you guys are just like next level amazing so thank you so much for doing this tell our listeners where they can follow you and find all of your amazing work online yeah of course you can follow us at the Uncle Collective my website is www.theuncledcollective.com on Instagram um, definitely check us out give us a follow read through the content because it's very interesting that, that's really the main charge I'll give to anyone visiting our page actually read some of the posts and read the comments there. yeah we have a highlight that's called most shared and it's all of our most viral posts so definitely check out the very side of the MIS medical discrimination that we're talking about and tons of other posts on some of the sisters All right, so I'm so happy that you guys got to listen to our stories today. As always, you can follow us on social media and keep up with our work and our crazy adventures. Then you can follow us on Instagram at Cynthia Rowley and at Kit Keenan. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 